John chapter 5. Today we are finishing John chapter 5, which is good because that makes us nearly a third of the way. And through the book, if you are new to Sovereign Grace Church, then you have met us. Really, we are about a third of the way through a series in John. We started it in February. Hopefully, we'll be finished by about May next year. That's the aim. But we want to soak in John because it's such an amazing book. It's such a wonderful gospel. And so we come here to verses 30 through 47. If you want a title for this message, if you're making notes, I've called it Five Trustworthy Witnesses. And let's read from verse 30. It's Jesus speaking. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Well, Father, in the midst of our lives, there are many words. There are many words even this day that each individual in this room will be the recipient of and will give. And yet, Lord, we want to sit in this moment under your words. We want to hear your voice. We want this to be the highlight of the week, not the preacher but the words, your words. And so, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts wide to receive these words that we may be changed, that we may be affected, that we may be encouraged, for you are good. Amen. When I lived in the United Kingdom, one of the things I did a little bit of was play golf. Now, I was rubbish. I wasn't very good at golf, but I certainly liked to try every now and again. Once I figured out which end you should actually hold, I thought it would be quite fun to swing that club and and play golf. And so for me, like everybody else, every other golfer out there, I I really dreamed about hitting a hole in one. I mean, that would just be amazing, wouldn't it? To actually tee off and go all the way to the flag and then see it drop in. That would just be an absolute dream. And as a golfer, as a guy who tries to play golf, that that would be like the highlight of my life. And I'm I'm told that it's absolutely amazing if you do it. But I'm also told that it's an absolute horror if you hit that hole in one and you're by yourself. (laughs) I mean, imagine that. That is just so awkward, isn't it? You get to the 19th hole in the pub at the end and you say, you'll never guess what, everybody. I hit a hole in one on the 17th. Well, who says? Who saw you? Oh, just myself. I was by myself. All right, oh, yeah. Thanks for playing. Thanks for coming. There's just no way that that person would get away with that. And for the rest of their life, then they would live knowing that I really did hit a hole in one. But no one believes me. It's the same with fishermen, isn't it? It's like the big one that got away. I grew up in Spalding in Lincolnshire in the east coast of England. And one of the things that everybody did was they went fishing. 
because there wasn't a lot else to do. There was no cinema, so that, that was that. There wasn't even a McDonald's until I left. So what should we do? Well, let's go fishing again. So we used to go fishing, and now and again you would end up fishing by yourself. And so in the pub at the end of the day, you would talk to your friends about what you caught, and there would always be these endless stories about the big one that got away. You know, well, I didn't actually catch anything, but there was this one at the end of my life. It was massive. It was probably about this big, and everybody's fish are allegedly bigger than the others, but no one ever really sees them. That's so everybody just mocks people for it because they don't believe them. You see, witnesses matter, don't they? Witnesses are important. Witnesses make a difference. Witnesses strengthen our faith in someone's claim. And so whatever the claim is, witnesses actually strengthen that claim. And they say, you know what? That person's telling the truth. They're right. That's how it works in a court of law for us. When I was about 12 years old, I had to go to court, fortunately not as the accused, but actually as a witness, as I had actually been sitting upstairs in a room, a very high room, and I was looking down onto a cash point machine, and this guy got out of his car and smacked the cash point machine with a crowbar and then tried to get money out of it. And I saw him. I'm just sitting there with my mates going, look at that. And so we got called to court to actually be witnesses in this case because this guy was saying he hadn't hit it at all. He had just rested his coat there. And we're all like, give me a break. He hit it with a crowbar. And so we all got called as witnesses. And that's how it works in a court of law. And a witness is a call to strengthen somebody's claim or to prosecute against a claim. Witnesses are really important. Witnesses matter. And that principle is exactly what we see here at work in John chapter 5, verses 30 to 47. Because right here in this text, we see Jesus in a complete act of love calling upon five trustworthy witnesses to strengthen his claim to deity. That's all it's about. Jesus, in grace, loving these people enough to call upon five trustworthy witnesses to strengthen his claim to deity. You see, chapter 5, as we saw last, last week, I just think is so cool. And the scene starts so amazingly well. In verses 1 through 14, we see just a wonderful scene where Jesus rocks up at a pool called Bethesda, right by the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, and he heals this guy who has been an invalid for 38 years. This guy can completely not walk. He's tried to get into the pool time and time again. It's not worked out. Jesus walks straight up to him and says, look, do you want to be healed? Well, this guy affirms, yes, I would really like to be healed. And he says, well, look, no, no worries. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And in an absolute sentence, in a moment, this guy who's been an invalid for 38 years does exactly that. And yet in verses 15 through 18, this scene then turns into what is called a courtroom. The religious Jews are on the accusatory end. They are accusing Jesus, and Jesus is without question in the dock. They are accusing Jesus as religious Jews. They are absolutely appalled that he would heal somebody on the Sabbath. And we saw the absurdity of that last week, of all their religious nonsense rules. But according to them, you are now a Sabbath breaker. You have broken the rule. But even worse than that, you're claiming to be God. That's why you use the phrase, my father. For these religious Jews wouldn't have done that. They would have used our father. But to say my father would have meant that you're claiming to be God himself. And that was appalling to them. And so they put him in the dock. They say, you are a Sabbath breaker and you are blaspheming. And in verses 19 through 29 then, which we looked at last week, we see Jesus three times standing toe-to-toe with them, saying, you know what, you accuse me of blaspheming, claiming that I'm God. I'm not blaspheming. I'm telling you the truth. I am God. And so three times he reaffirms the claim to them as he sits in the dock that he really is God. He claims complete unity between himself and the Father, claiming deity. He claims the sovereign power to give life. Well, only God gives life. So he's claiming to be God. And he claims the sovereign authority to judge. Only God can judge. And Jesus says, yeah, and I'm he. I'm here. I am the judge. And the result then of that whole scene is that they want to kill him. They hate him. And so in these verses, verses 30 to 47, we see Jesus then in a complete act of love calling upon five trustworthy witnesses to strengthen his claim to deity. See, make no mistake, he loves them. Even though they're accusing him, even though they're mocking him, he is distinctly bothered about them. The second half of verse 34, he says, but I say these things so that you may be saved. 
He's not cross with them. He's not defending himself primarily just because he's got this inferiority complex and is trying to convince himself. He knows exactly who he is, but he wants them to understand who he is and really see who he is so that they may be saved. And so he brings witnesses one by one. In verse 31, it says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. See, Jesus knew what it would be like to score a golf hole on the 18th and be by yourself. He knew what it was like to fish and catch the big one and nobody realizes. And so in this context, he says to them, you know what? I understand that witnesses matter. And so as you're accusing me of actually blaspheming that I'm God and I'm telling you that I'm God, I understand that my claim in and by itself isn't going to be enough for you. So I call upon these persons here present. And he brings out five witnesses to parade before their eyes that I really am God. I really am exactly who I'm saying to be. You see, this passage that we have in front of us today is all about Christ cultivating and strengthening faith in each of our hearts. That's why it's here. He's already claimed that he is God, but now he wants them and indeed us to completely know for sure that this is true as he strengthens and cultivates faith, not only in their hearts, but in ours too. You see, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then thanks for coming. And you have our deepest respect for being here. And we're honored that you would be with us. And I believe God wants to speak to you from this passage as he convicts you and convinces you that Jesus really is God. And if that's the case, then that changes everything. But if you're here today and you are a believer, you do know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I think this text is for you as well. It has great implications for you as well because through this text, Jesus Christ is looking you in the eye and saying, you know what, I am exactly who I said I am. He's trying to strengthen faith in our heart. He's trying to cultivate faith in our heart. And in all reality, that changes everything. Listen, if you ever worry about anything, do you ever worry about anything? The reason why you ultimately worry about things is because you lack faith in Jesus' claims of deity. Because if you really believe it, it changes everything. So this is for every one of us in this room. And so five witnesses. And here's the first one that he calls. Number one, the witness of John the Baptist. Let's look at verse 33. He says, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. It was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I gave is greater than that of John. You know, John the Baptist is a massively popular figure. So he is a great guy for the Savior to pick on here as a defendant that he really is God. If we went back 2,000 years ago to Palestine, pre-Christ, and, and asked them the question, you know, who is the most famous, influential person in this season? Who is the guy that everybody knows? Who is the household name? Who is the guy that seems to consistently make the front page of the Palestinian Times? They would have said, well, that's John the Baptist, because he is so popular. He's like the David Beckham of the UK. This guy, everybody's heard of him. Everybody knows who he is. He's incredibly popular. And he's popular because for about 400 years, there was really prophetic silence before John the Baptist. Everything stopped. And so as soon as John the Baptist comes on the scene and everything starts to happen, people are in absolute uproar. And they're convinced maybe he's Elijah. Or maybe he's the prophet of Moses. Or maybe he's the Messiah himself. And so people are flocking out in literally their thousands, sometimes entire cities, just to get a glimpse of John the Baptist and hear him and see him and be baptized with him because they were so fascinated with who he is. Well, the Jewish leaders, as we saw in chapter 1 a few months ago, therefore sent a delegation to John to find out who the heck he is. See, the Jewish leaders, these guys thought themselves to be the guardians of the truth. They felt that their standard was the only way. And so John the Baptist, well, who does he think he is? Sound familiar for what they're doing with the Savior in this moment too? This is how they operated. Who do you think you are? How dare you be claiming to do these different things? And so they sent a delegation out to him. We see it in chapter 1, verse 19. And in verse 33 here, where he says, you sent to John, it's that delegation that Jesus is referring to. Because these are the guys that sent the delegation. 
These are the men that sent the Levites and the priests to interview John to find out from John, who exactly do you think you are? And Jesus is very deliberately reminding them of that moment. The Savior is trying to draw to their attention, who did John say I am? Because if you read chapter 1, that's exactly what happens. In chapter 1, this delegation arrive at John and they ask him, who are you? Are you the Christ? No, he says. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet that Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 18? No. Well, who are you then, John? And he says, you know what? I'm just a voice. I'm an announcer. I'm just a voice, a voice for one who comes after me, whose sandal strap I'm unworthy to untie. He basically explains to them that I'm not the one you're looking for, but the one that you are looking for is here. And the next day to that questioning, as Jesus approaches John, presumably with the delegation still in the background, John the Baptist in that moment points at Jesus Christ and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. He's letting the delegation know and the crowds know and all of eternity know this is him. This is God. This is the one who has promised. This is the perfect spotless lamb. This is the Messiah. This is God. And so as Jesus stands there on this day, he says to these guys now being interviewed by them, remember John? Who did he say I was? Don't just take my word for it, for I'm claiming to be God. But who did John the Baptist say I was? And so I give you witness one. John the Baptist. He pointed at me and said I was God. Next then, he turns to the witness of his works. Number two. This is what he says in verse 36. He says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And so I give you exhibit A, John the Baptist. Now I call upon the persons here present to hear about what the Scriptures say about me what they say about the miracles, the works that I've done. You see, Jesus performed literally hundreds of miracles, didn't he? There are loads. John only picks on a few of them to actually show us. But if you put all the Gospels together, you realize there is miracle after miracle after miracle to look at. There are literally hundreds that Jesus does. So the wedding at Cana, 180 gallons of water are turned into wine in an absolute moment, not just a bit of wine, but a multitude of wine and the absolute best wine. There's a healing of a man born blind, a beggar. And Jesus spits on the ground, gets a little mud pack going on, puts it on his eyes and then says, listen, go wash it out. And as this guy does that, he's healed. He starts to see. We see the feeding of the 5,000, which we'll start to look at next week. Hundreds and thousands of tired and hungry people. Five loaves and two fish appear on the scene. And Jesus prays over them and suddenly they've all ate to the absolute maximum and there's 12 baskets of the stuff left over. Jesus was the one then that raised the widow's son. As he walks into Cain and the funeral procession comes out, he sees the mother crying. He says, what are you crying about? Well, I've lost my son. They haven't. He's just resting. And he calls this child back to life. He raises him back from the dead. He does the same with Lazarus, his friend. And this whole incident here in chapter 5 has happened because he has healed a man who thirty for 38 years could not walk a step. But now he's walking away. Jesus had hundreds of works. And there is no doubt that Jesus is performing these miracles out of compassion. He wants them to be healed. He wants them to go away well. There's no doubt about that, but it's not just that. In verse 36, he makes it clear that these miracles, these works are being done to point you to the fact that they're the Father's works. They're signs. You know, as a kid, I grew up in a Christian home, and so I always heard of signs and wonders. And I thought they were pretty cool. I grew up in a Pentecostal church and and I saw people get healed. I saw lots of things go on. It was like, this is amazing. This can only be explained with God. And I love that and I'm all for that. But I never understood that they were signs, not that we're just meant to in and of themselves go, wow, isn't that amazing? They were signs ultimately in this moment to point to the truth that Jesus is God. 
They were signs that were meant to show us he's exactly who he said he is. Because only God can heal. Only God can do these things. And so the second witness he calls on them without question, and not only John the Baptist, but his miracles. And what he's saying to them is, listen guys, how am I doing those things? Are they the works of a liar? Are they the works of a lunatic? Are they the works of a guy who's blaspheming? Or are they the works of God? I mean, they must have been so hard-hearted, don't you think? They have just seen this guy get healed, a man who is paralyzed, take up his bed and walk off. But they're so preoccupied that he's broken the law, they can't even really notice that he's just walked off. Nowhere in this do they say, you know what, I don't believe you, you never committed the works. I think, that, oh, I think he looked like a guy that used to be paralyzed for 38 years. They never say that. They know full well that this is the guy, and they know full well he's been healed. They never argue with that. Their issue is he did it on the Sabbath. Do you see the insanity of blindness? And so he wheels that witness up, the witness of his works. Then in verse 37, we see what Jesus, to Jesus, is a massively important witness. Namely, number three, the witness of the Father. I mean, if you're going to call upon a witness, this is the one you want to call on. Yahweh. Verse 37, 8. It says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. What a bold and incredible statement. You want to know who I am? Well, listen to the Father's words. Because he also exclaimed that I'm his son. See, I think in part in an external witness way, Jesus is himself talking there about the voice that came from heaven at the Savior's baptism. We see it in Mark chapter 1, verse 11. It's just the most beautiful scene. It's not actually told for us here in John because I think John is assuming that we would already know that. He knows that he's speaking to people that were already there. He's not, he's not writing in the context of just giving us a genealogy in, the same, in terms of a historical sense. But it's recorded for us in the book of Mark. And in Mark, we see as Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him at a dove. And then what happens? A voice comes from heaven. It happens in Mark chapter 12 as well. A voice comes from heaven and he makes it clear that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. There would have been people all around that would have heard those voices. And what Jesus is saying is, do you remember that? I'm not just pointing at myself. The father pointed at me and exclaimed that I am indeed his son. I don't think he's just on about that, though. He's also talking, I think, about the internal witness. The internal witness, the internal witness of the spirit in the life of every believer. You see, I think this could be missed. But I think John, as he writes this, is very deliberately using those words to help tag our memory to that truth. You see, in 1 John 5, his first letter, verses 9 to 10, listen, listen to his words. He says, for this is the testimony of God that has been born concerning his son. Okay, so that's pretty direct. This is the testimony from the father concerning the son. Well, what is the testimony? Here it is. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Isn't it wonderful? For this is the witness of the father. It is not only that he pointed at me during the baptism and exclaimed that I am his beloved son, but to all those who become Christians, he gives the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit from within witnesses that I am indeed God. It is so bold and so incredible. And so what Jesus is pointing their attention to is there is an external and an internal witness of the Father of all that follow me can hear. And so I call upon the witness of the Father. All my disciples, they're already following me. Many of these guys believe I'm God. Why don't you? Many people heard from the Father that I am his son. As we see later on in the book of John, when it happens again, all they hear is thunder. They can't hear the words. And yet other people can completely hear the words. Why is that? But he calls upon the witness nonetheless. I call upon my Father. He claimed that I was God. You know, I think what happens then in verses 37 through 44 are one of the most gracious, compassionate, courageous, caring moments of the Savior. See, in these verses, he is not angry with them. He's not cross with them. He's not frustrated with them. He's not disappointed with them. He is in these verses, 37b through 44, appealing to them. 
See, he knows full well that they cannot see at this point in time the witness of the Father. And so he starts to explain to them why that is. Because he cares. He loves them. He's trying to appeal to them. This is what he says. He says, And the Father who sent me is himself born witness about me. But his voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. What a massive thing to say to them. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Listen. And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. That is courageous, compassionate, and gracious leadership. As he goes toe-to-toe with them, completely unangrily, he says, guys, you can't see it, can you? You can't see the witness of the Father. And I'll tell you why. I love you too much to stay silent on this. I'll tell you why you can't see it. You can't hear it. And you can't see it because although you think you're alive and living fully for the glory of God, you're dead and you live for your own glory. What a, what a courageous, caring moment from the Savior, don't you think? What courage to explain to his accusers in this moment that, look, you're probably going to hate me for saying this, but you need to understand you think your whole lives are about God, but they're not. They're about you. They're about your own glory. It's all about pleasing yourself. It's all about doing your own thing. You know, this week, as I've just reflected on that as a complete aside, I've just felt myself afresh encouraged to be more courageous with unbelievers. See, so often I think we we can think that I've got to have a 10-year bridge before I could even possibly try and confront them about where their life is at. Well, the Savior seems to take about two minutes. And then in love... I'm just going to have to tell you because I may never see you again. And so you need to know, look, I love you. I'm claiming to be God and and you can't see because even though you think you're righteous, you're you're not. You're dead. You think you're after God's glory, but you're not. You're after your own. What courage and what grace and what love. You know, I don't know what you think God is like. I don't know what you think your God is like. Behold your God. This is what he's like. When we blow it in our lives, when we make mistakes, we can be so hesitant sometimes to come back to him because we think, well, what what, what if he's angry? Behold your God. A God who is abounding in grace and love and slow to anger. These guys are accusing him. Yet in grace he makes it clear to them, I am who I said I am. And I want to help you see why you can't see it. Because I love you. Isn't it wonderful? What a king. What a gracious and kind saviour. And it's in the midst of that expression that he then calls upon the fourth witness. The witness of scripture. So the scene is building. Witness number one, John the Baptist. Witness two, the miracles. Witness three, the father. And now we go to the witness of scripture. Let's read verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures... Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet it is they that bear witness about me. You know, the whole of Scripture points to Jesus Christ, doesn't it? That's the point. It all does. Every page in this book whispers the name of Jesus Christ. And all Scripture then, which is particularly Graphe, which is particularly the Old Testament, what Jesus is saying is all those Scriptures, they all point to me. On the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Christ appears to two of his disciples. You read the story in Luke 24. It must have been the best biblical theology lesson that anybody had ever received. Because on the road to Messiah, Jesus walking along with these two disciples starts to help them see that beginning with Moses and the prophets, all the scriptures point to him. And he starts to walk along with them and starts to talk to them about Moses then and the Pentateuch and all that was resolved in that. And he starts to help them see that all this all pointed to me. And you know what? As you become a Christian and you look back on the Old Testament, I think that truth becomes blindingly obvious. 
See, the Old Testament is filled with hundreds of shadows and types. From the scarlet cord that Rahab ties around the walls of Jericho, to the serpent that is lifted up in the wilderness with Moses, to the Passover lamb, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of shadows and types in the Old Testament, and each and every one of them points to Jesus. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, given by many different voices over 500 years, and every single one of them points to Jesus, points to where he would be born, points to how he would die, points to what type of guy he would be, when he would come, what he would say. There are so many Old Testament pointers and shadows and types that lean to Jesus. So why didn't they see it? I mean, this is baffling to me. (laughs) Why didn't they get it? I mean, are they dense? Clearly not. With all due respect, they were probably much better Bible scholars than any of us in this room. If you said to a religious leader, a Jew, you know what? Tell me about Isaiah. Do you know how he would reply? He would say, you know what, take a seat a moment. And while you're pouring yourself a cup of tea, he would recite for you the whole of Isaiah because he would have memorized it. Oh, okay. So what about Exodus? What do you know about that? Take another sit down. And he would quote for you verbatim the entirety of Exodus. These guys were incredibly scholarly in their understanding of the Bible. They numbered the words and numbered the letters because they wanted to be able to know exactly where everything was. So if you said to a guy, okay, well, what's number word 344? Um, God. Who cares? But to these guys, it was vitally important as they wanted to understand all the technicalities of Scripture, where everything fitted in, and they wanted to memorize it and know it and understand it. So how on earth did they not see Jesus? How did they miss this? How did they miss this most obvious point that everything points to him? Well, here's why. From this text and from other texts in the Bible, what you realize is they missed it because of their approach to the Bible. As they read the Bible, all they did was look for rules. They looked at it as a manual. They looked at it as something that they should just memorize, and in the very act of memorization, they'd probably get into heaven through that. And they looked at it by very nature as a rule book and a manual, much rather than a story of redemption through the person of Jesus Christ. They were, in effect, obsessed with the framework of the Bible, and yet never saw the view. They never saw it because they were so obsessed with the Bible itself. It's rather like, I was thinking about it this week, it's like, it's like two people going on holiday, a husband and wife, and one of them happens to be a, a glass salesman, a window salesman. That's what it's like. That's what's going on here, okay? It's like a husband and wife, they go on holiday, and the husband is a window salesman. So they go to the best view they can possibly see. They set up a cottage on the outside of Nambucca Heads, They're looking out at the valley. They're looking out at the beach. They're looking out at all the different things. And the wife runs into the home as they arrive and goes, look at this. Look at this view. Because there are windows everywhere showing the view of Nambucca Heads. And she is just looking out the window thinking, this is incredible. Look at what God has made. Look at how incredible he is. Look at what he's done. Look at him in his creation and majesty. But the husband hasn't spotted that yet. Because he's over here and he is obsessed with the window frames. Darling, look at this window frame. It is just incredible. I mean, look at the way it's structured in the framework and look at the actual pane itself. He's never looked at the view once. He can't see it. He's just obsessed with the framework. And so the wife appeals to him again. Look look at what God has done. But he's not thinking that way. He's just trying to become infected and affected by the frame itself, by the window itself. You know what Jesus is pointing out here and what the Bible explains is, you know what, these religious Pharisees are like the window salesmen. They've become obsessed with the frame. They've become obsessed with the intricacies of the Bible. They've become obsessed with the massive memorization and that they have failed to see the view. They failed to not, they failed to study it in its context. So all they see is rules and regulations rather than the view which is all about Jesus. Do you see how it works? You see, folks, as a local church, I want us to be passionate about studying the Bible. I do. 
We want to be dug down deep in God's word. We want to be passionate about God's word. But I am, over my dead body, are we going to get obsessed with the framework? Because it's not about the framework. Do not rock up at your life group and, well, I don't want to tell you about Jesus because, you know, I don't want to tell you about anything that's happened in my life because I'm not sure what's all the fuss about the gospel. But I can quote for you the entire of Isaiah. I don't care about Isaiah. I want to know about the view. When we do table talk, I'm so excited about table talk. I want us to see us diving into God's word. But it must always have an effect of seeing the view. Seeing Jesus. So when we study and we get into God's word, which we must do, that's how we build the frameworks in our lives. That's how we see the windows. That's how we know what to look at. But let us never get obsessed with the intricacies of the frame. Let's get obsessed with the view. Because the view is Jesus. It's all about him. It's all the gospel. They never saw this. They failed to see it. I don't want us to fail to see it. I want us to live with the view. They didn't live with the view. And so Jesus in grace, as witness number four, wheels in the scriptures and says, you know what? Look again. You know it. Tell me about Isaiah. That points to me. Tell me about Exodus. See all those little shadows and types? They're me. Look at it. And then there's an example of that. Number five. He calls upon the witness of Moses. Now this was an audacious and brave move because Moses was a hero to these religious leaders. Moses was a big deal. Outside of Abraham, there would be no one else more important to a Jew. And so Jesus knows that. And so in a few weeks' time, he's going to pick on Abraham as well. But right now, he wants to take us to Moses and he wants to help them see, you know what, your spiritual hero, Moses, he talked about me too. Read verse 45. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What's he talking about there? Well, in part, he's talking to us about the Pentateuch. First five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were all written by Moses. And so part what he's trying to say is, you remember all those things that you can all quote off and spout back to me? Yeah, thanks for that. They, They all point to me. They're all me. They were all reflections of me. Moses was seeking to point you to me. Your spiritual hero was seeking to point you to me. That the Messiah, the Son of God, God himself would come. In part, he's no doubt referring to that, but I think he's also referring in particular to a prophecy that Moses made in Deuteronomy 18. See, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses made a prophecy of a great prophet to come. That's why they thought it might be John the Baptist. But when you read it in context and when you read it as the Bible functions, what you actually find is, you know what, it's not talking about just any prophet. It's talking about the great prophet. He's talking about the one a prophecy about one who would come after him, one who would be from his own people, one who would speak the very words of God. And as you read back into that text, you realize this one would read, would read and speak the very words of God because one day one would come as the greatest prophet of all and he would be God. And what Jesus is saying then as he goes toe-to-toe with them is that one is me. So your spiritual hero, Moses... He talked about me as well. And so, as the chapter finishes, the Savior rests his case. (laughs) I claim to be God. I claim to be Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man. I claim deity. But I understand that witnesses matter. I understand that. So I call upon these five witnesses. The witness of John the Baptist. The witness of my works. The witness of my Father the witness of scriptures, and the witness of Moses, and I rest my case. You know, I'm expecting then, verse 48, to be somewhat climatic. I'm I'm thinking this is full on now. This is going to be a precious moment where the Jews bow the knee and they respond with, you are exactly who you said you are. How could we be so crazy? You are God. But we don't. Verse 48 doesn't exist. 
It actually says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And you think, no, what, what happened? Where did they go? You know, this is one of the climactic moments of the entire book. Where did everybody go? What happened? Well, I think John doesn't report it for us because in some ways we know what happens. They reject him. And we know that because in a few chapters' time, they still want to kill him. And in a few chapters after that, they get their way and Jesus is crucified. Even as Jesus defends who he is, even as he calls witnesses, they still reject him. They still run away from him, claiming that he is blaspheming, claiming that this is in no way the truth. And that can appear grieving. And I think it can appear, at least to me, to be a bit of a waste. So why is this even recorded for us, Jesus? Jesus, why did you waste your energy on a group of people that rejected you anyway? Why did you bother when you knew they would reject him? It appears to be an awful waste. But you know what? It's not a waste. It's never a waste. And in the book of John, it's really never a waste. Because around these Jews on that day, even 2,000 years ago, were more faces in the crowd. Others that would be looking on from the sidelines. Stadiums upon stadiums looking on at the Saviour's words and the Saviour's claims and the Saviour's witnesses. Faces that he knew. Faces that he loves. Faces that he cares about. Faces that he wants to cultivate and strengthen faith in himself in. Faces that belong to people that are his own. Your faces. You're in the crowd. See, John chapter 20 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe, you, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Was it a waste then? Because they rejected him? Not at all. Because around them that day was a myriad of other faces your faces. And in care then, he records it in scripture with the simple expression really at the end implied of who do you then say I am? And what is your verdict? And what is your response going to be? That's why this book was written for you so that you may see. So let me ask you then, what then is your response going to be to this overwhelming claim of deity? Listen, if you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, I want to urge you then to bow the knee and truly believe. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came and he came after you in all grace because you had rejected God the Father just like I had. You had run away from God the Father and as a result of that, you are, you are obsolete from him. He is a, his wrath is pointed at you and you can have no relationship with him. Because he is holy and you are sinful. And yet 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came. And in John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. What is your response then to this? I urge you, bow the knee then and truly believe. He came to bring you back to God. He came so that you could be forgiven and adopted, so that you could know that heaven is your home. And the only way to receive that is through faith. So bow the knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords and know then true life. That's why he came. If you're a believer though, which is most of you, if you're a Christian, then here's the thing. Here's the take home and it is vital we understand this. I urge you to take your stand then and truly live. Now for those of you that are observant, you'll be thinking this moment, Dave, that appears to be your point from last week as well. Is that just because I got lazy and ran out of time? Or? You know, here's the thing. We're still in chapter 5. And so it isn't a pastor's job or a preacher's job to be creative with application. It's a preacher's job to preach the word faithfully and to let the word do the work. And that is the work it's meant to be doing. It's meant to be helping equip us and cultivate and strengthen faith in our hearts towards the Saviour, which has massive implications 
And yet I'd also submit to you that in all honesty, that application is not exactly the same as last week's. Last week's it was, I urge you to take your stand and truly live. This week's it's, I urge you to take your stand and truly live. But last week, we didn't have five witnesses standing behind us saying, he's right. He is the king. Jesus is God. And that really does strengthen everything, I think. Because in light of these five witnesses, when we are then called to take our stand and truly live, what we need to understand is that now comes not only with the claim of the Savior, but it comes with the claim of five others. Like a freight train driving through our lives, we can stand even more on the word because if we stand there, we don't just stand alone, me and Jesus. We stand there with five witnesses saying, he's right. He is the king. Jesus has come and Jesus was God and that changes everything. It strengthens everything. Let me explain. Here's, here's how it changes everything. When condemnation comes knocking and we begin to become overwhelmed by the guilt that's in our heart, we pick up a sinful pattern that we thought we had dealt with three years before and it's back. And Satan then in that moment tempts us to despair. How could you do this? I thought you were a Christian. I thought you stopped this. Are you really saved? You ever felt those things? I know I have. When Satan comes to dart us with guilt and condemnation, what are we then to do as Christians? How do we respond? How do we let this text actually make implications in our lives? Well, here's what we do. When condemnation comes knocking, we take our stand on the truth that Jesus is king. We take our stand on the truth that Jesus is God and we remind ourselves then of John 19 verse 30 where Jesus himself says, it is finished. It's done. So when Satan tempts you to despair, upward you look and see him there who made an end of all your sin. For our sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And then as we declare that truth, And when the voice still comes knocking that, is this true? Is this true? We not only stand on the truth that Jesus is my king, but we appeal to John the Baptist and the miracles and the works and Moses and the Father, all people that are saying, this is very true. It's gone. Jesus is the king. God has come. That's how then this influences our lives. Because even when we start to doubt, we remember not only the claim of the Savior, but the claims of the witnesses all crying out, this is true. So your sin has been dealt with, and it is finished. When trials come, when you go to the doctor, and you go back for a test, and it's not good news. And when the boss calls you in on a Monday morning and says, we need to have a talk because things haven't been going too well with our business. And you think, oh my gosh. That's going to work. Or your child comes to you with issues and you just think, I don't know what to say. They clearly fall in with a bad crowd. I don't know what to do. How does this text then influence that? Well, here's how it influences it. We take our stand then on that moment on the truth that Jesus is our king. And we remember in that moment, Matthew 28 verse 20, where Jesus says, and behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Look, folks, if this is true, it implies everything. If Jesus really is the king, if he really is the one that stands against the Jews in this moment and says, I am God, and all the other witnesses around says, he is God, and then he looks you in your eye and says, lo, I'll be with you, 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 to the end of the age. If that doesn't cultivate faith in our hearts, I don't know whatever will. Because these are the words of the king. And when we start to doubt them, we must stand on the word of Christ, but we must also stand on the word of the witnesses that are saying, it's true, it's true, it's true. When we start to unravel our future and fears come, what if we won't be able to cope down the track? What about my plans? I had such great plans. By this point, I should have had a great job. I should have been married. But I'm not. Lord, what is this? How does this work? This text implies on those points. It cultivates like a freight train through us because when those fears come, we take a stand on the truth that Jesus is the king and we remember John 6 verse 37 that says, For all that the Father gives to me will come to me and of them 
I will lose none. Do we believe in once saved, always saved at Sovereign Grace Church? Absolutely, because Jesus believes it. That's the very thing that he claims. He claims by very nature that, you know what? All that the Father gives to me, all that I died for, I will lose absolutely none of them. So if one is lost then, he is a liar. (laughs) But we don't believe that. We believe he's the king. And so as we live our lives, then we stand on the truth then that he is God. He is the king. And so when my future starts to unravel and you think, where are you, Lord? What can I do? Surely this isn't the way it was meant to be. We remind ourselves that he is the king and that he will never lose us. And from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. And we allow then that truth to cultivate from our heads to our hearts. And we stand on it. Because it's true. Folks, witnesses matter. They strengthen our faith in someone's claim. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. Having claimed to be God, he now calls upon five witnesses because he loves us. And he wants our faith to be strengthened and cultivated. So he calls upon five witnesses that stand behind him and says, he is exactly who he says he is. He's the king. So would we stand on those truths in Amen? Let them filter from heads to hearts and stand on them. Because behold, your God has come. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you do cultivate faith in our hearts. And Holy Spirit, thank you for being with us this morning again. Lord, it's not down to us just to try and find clever words. It's not even down to our hearts to be cultivated. Ultimately, it's down to you. And you have your way in our midst and you have your way in our church. So, Lord, thank you for being a good shepherd and thank you for being our king, one who we can rely on, one who will never let us go. For you are good. Amen.